Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com A Living History Production I'm Peter Hart, and for the last 40 years, I've interviewed thousands of veterans. I'll give it a rest. You're under new management. It's Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast now. Hello, and welcome to Some Success, Air War 1916, the latest podcast with me, Peter Hart, and lovely Gary Bain, the focus of all your uh, Twitter feeds, as far as, as I can see. Nothing but praise for you, Gary. Harsh words from me. Hello, Pete. How are you? I'm good. I'm very good. Uh, as, Why is as your say, arm wet? I've been washing up. I'm not very good <laughs> at it. You missed a bit, obviously. <laughs> yeah. That's, That's very wet. <laughs> it's very wet. <laughs> Uh, washing up is a highly skilled business, and after uh, I've been doing it since I retired, every day, every morning. That's and, a lot of uh, washing up. It's a lot of washing up, uh, and I now realise that I wasn't doing my fair share of household work for the previous thirty years. However, let's move on to, as I said, some success. Now, this uh, this was the title of uh, a chapter in uh, in my book, Tumult in the Clouds, with Nigel Steele. And Chris McCarthy, the miserable bastard from the Imperial War Museum staff who wrote books on the Somme and Bastardale, great bloke, said, typical public schoolboy sort of wanker title. And I said, I went to grammar school. <laughs> I don't think that helped. Anyway, you also uh, went to Liverpool University. I did went to Liverpool University, yes. <laughs> As opposed to Nigel Steele, who was educated at Corpus Christi Sausage. Um <laughs> Some success, and and um, he said that was a stupid, pretentious title. So I called the next book "Some Success," um, and uh, it didn't sell very well. Uh, but it's about the air war in nineteen sixteen. It's it's um, it's a very interesting story. Let's look at the background. We, we've already covered off our views on the air war nineteen fourteen nineteen fifteen some time ago. But there are podcasts. Should people want to to go and have a listen? We've so we're going to we're going to presume a level of knowledge about about the the purpose. And well, how I wouldn't the assume end. a level of knowledge about me, to be honest. No, I'm not going to assume a lot of knowledge there. As you know, on the ground, the French and the British have spent 
1915. So I really tried to master the, the language of this new warfare that they were embroiled in, uh, industrial warfare. Uh, and by 1916, they're, they're sort of they're, re they're ready to go, if you like. They're ready to go to 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 to, to try and win the war. Uh, they and they they, they organised coordinated uh, offensives. So the Russians and the Italians would, would launch offensives, but the really big one was going to be a Franco-British effort on the Western Front, and they picked the Somme sector because Joff didn't trust us at all and wanted us next to him. <laughs> Which was the sum, so he could keep an eye on us. It's funny how other countries don't trust the British. It's as if we were untrustworthy. And what were the Germans doing? Were they just sort of hanging around, waiting, saying, "Oh, what's going to happen next?" Yes, <laughs> you mean like like we would. <laughs> what's going on? What what's happening next? No, the Germans are different. And what they did was launch the uh, the the, uh, the Verdun offensive in February 1916, which rather puts a kibosh on the whole thing because they're still going to have the summer offensive. But by that means the fact that the, the French and Germans were knocking seven different types of shit out of each other meant that uh, they were that, that, that they were going to have a much smaller role, although still big, in the summer offensive. Now, let's talk briefly about what's going on in the air. Well, there's been a revolution. We talked about it in the last two uh, air podcasts. Um, and the first thing is uh, they developed photographic reconnaissance. And by 1916, instead of poking through the hole in the floor of the plane, they've got it strapped to the outside of the, the cockpit. Now, I'll put a picture up. And what they get from these photographs taken at the same altitude is a photographic map of everything below them. Now, this is a quote from Second Lieutenant Cecil Lewis, Squadron Royal Flying Corps. And I want you to think, Gary, as to how well you, as a competent grown adult, would manage the tasks that he's got here. Here he goes. A camera was one of those real antiques made by the ancient Greeks. Good square mahogany box with a leather concertina pull-out. The hell thing was strapped on the outside of the aeroplane, and you had a sort of ball and ring sight at the back, and a little handle that you pushed and pulled to change the gla glass plates. In addition to that, uh, a bit of wire with a ring on it, which was skittering around in the wind to pull every time you wanted to take a picture. To take the photo, you had to lean over the side of the cockpit, look down through this ball sight, fly the aeroplane with the left hand, move the camera handle, changing the plates with the right. Every time you change the plate, you pull the string, wait until you had flown along a bit more, judge the overlap, and did it again. Now, how would you have managed with that, Gary? <laughs> I wouldn't have got off the ground, to be honest. <laughs> Oh. Well, several reasons for that. But, <laughs> but I mean, you, the coordination... you got in the cockpit. <laughs> the, the coordination required is incredible. And all the time watching out for fuckers. Yeah, well, there was a lot of fuckers about at that time. <laughs> right, so now they also, by this time, that those are to create a sort of map below which could... Uh, be used for photographic interpretation. Let's look at that. So um, what does photographic interpretation, what does it give you, Gary? Give us an idea of what you can do through the new art of photographic interpretation. Well, it starts to give you the detail of the, the ground you can't actually see. Um, so you know, From the ground? Yeah, from, <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you can clearly see it from the air, otherwise it's all a bit pointless. Uh, that's the podcast, people. Thanks very much. Goodbye. Um but, uh, I mean, there's an art to photographic interpretation. So, for example, they could identify very quickly German gun batteries, even when they were camouflaged, machine gun posts, 
and that that all stood revealed in these photographs, and you can't see that from the ground. Dugout entrances, footpaths. I mean, even now they say that if prehistoric man walked across the South Downs, you can see the, their old tracks 3,000 years ago across the fields from the air. And, of course, if you bury communication wires, telephone wires, well, there's a trench. Bury? You can, bury, yes, and you can see it. <laughs> That's how you pronounce bury. Oh, is it? <laughs> uh, so yeah, the experts have seen this. They've also got another type of photograph the oblique photograph that's taken with the camera at an angle gives you uh, a sort of it, it's useful for infantry officers because that that gives you a, a, a perspective so you can see what's in front of you from an angle uh, it, it shows the hidden ground which across which they might have to advance say, in an offensive like the Somme. so there we go now uh, there's also artillery observation. They've, we've talked about how they overcame the techni technological problems of getting the wireless transmitter and aerial up. And they were using the clock code, which meant that the aircraft could, could provide the corrections that get shells crashing down onto the targets. And this is Captain Archibald James, that second squadron RFC. Now, he was the world's most pompous person. And there was a fantastic pompous off, as they call it, with my boss of the time, David Lance, who was a boss of the sound archive at the War Museum. And... Uh, uh, James won hands down because when uh, when our typist wrote him a letter asking him a couple of things, he referred in his reply to the idiot with the tape recorder, uh, which Paddy then accidentally put up on the IWM notice board for everyone to see. <laughs> and and as I gazed at that letter in awe, I little knew that I would soon be the idiot with the phone with the, with the tape recorder. And here I am. And Matt will tell you how good I am at recording things, even today. No mistakes. Anyway, who are you? I'm Captain Archibald Jones, uh, Second Squadron, Royal Flying Corps. You watched the battery and you saw the flash of the guns. <laughs> you then knew, knew pretty well exactly how many seconds it would take for those shells to arrive at the target. You then shifted the wing of your aeroplane to have an unrestricted view of the target and you saw the fall of the shell or shells. The system of correcting faults was this. You had imaginary circles drawn around the target. 25 yards, 50 yards, 150, 200, 250, 300, 350, 400. All right, all right, all right, we've got the idea. <laughs> and you had a simple letter and figure code to indicate two things. The clock face points at which the shells were falling. In other words, whether they were falling at one o'clock or three o'clock from the target. And the distance as expressed in the imaginary circles which you visualised without much difficulty. With a good battery, batteries varied enormously, you should get them right on target at about the third salvo. <laughs> that is just a wonderful reading. Now, I want to make clear, James was a little pompous, but he was a brave and uh, accomplished officer who uh, had a, quite a career in the Royal Flying Corps throughout the First World War and therefore has our respect and admiration. However, he is funny. And I, we put the next quote in just because it shows his pomposity at the highest level. Also, he's particularly rude about corporals. What rank did you reach in the uh, army, Gary? Uh, corporal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Here we uh, go. Go on, Archibald. <laughs> one day... I was ranging a battery, and I looked over the side, and to my surprise, saw a German two-seater almost directly about 1,000 feet below me. 
I had in the front seat of the beard who says my observer and air gunner, a corporal in my squadron, who hadn't much experience in the air. So I throttled back, shouted to him what was happening, showed him the aeroplane and said, Get your Lewis gun. I omitted to say, Don't start shooting till I tell you to. With that, I proceeded to go down, circling on top of the all unsuspecting German. Unfortunately, my corporal got excited. <laughs> and when we were at least 150 yards away, he opened fire and discharged the whole drum of his Lewis gun without any effect at all. Indeed, the range was excessive. I then flattened out very, very close echelon above the Germans, and I shall never forget the look of horrified surprise on the Germans' faces when they looked up alerted by the rattle of my machine gun and looked at me in sort of open-mouthed astonishment. Achtung! Achtung! The German observer recovered his composure in probably two or three seconds and swung round the rotating mounting round his cockpit and pointed the gun at me and opened fire. Meanwhile, my idiot corporal was fumbling to try and get another drum I'll on. Get, I'll get this drum on now. <laughs> we were so close that I actually saw the oil burning off the recoiling portions of the German machine gun. Well, naturally... After two or three shots had been fired, I banked steeply away at the same moment the German banked in the same direction. And we almighty nearly collided. That was the end of a thoroughly unsatisfactory episode. That was brilliant, Gary. Well done. How many rounds in a, in a Lewis drum? Oh, God. 41. <laughs> well, or, you're in the 40s anyway. Or 43. Um, now... By 19... So, that that was a wonderful tale from, from Archibald J, James. What a character he was. By 1916, the British High Command, i.e. Haig and the other senior generals, have, have, have they've accepted the military value. They're not an optional extra, are they? They're not an optional extra. They are now central. Uh, why is that? Why is that? Why are they so important? Well, it's mainly because of their symbiotic relationship with the guns. We talked about that previously. A very posh word, uh, Gary. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you spelt it phonetically for me. <laughs> I did not spell it. I'd have spelt it wrong. <laughs> but, they, you know, we, we've laboured on that, actually, in, in the previous episodes. The role of supporting the guns is vital. It, that, that's far more important than any other role that they, they provide. So the, the Army Cooperation squ Corps squadrons have got a... Uh, identify the targets through photographic reconnaissance and then through artillery observation help destroy them they also have to fly contact patrols which is to see where the land forces have got up to during attacks and they've got bombing raids to attempt to disrupt communications and harass the germans in their rest billets so I, bombing I, raids how effective would that be then not that very time? very small bombs and very inaccurate bomb aimers it's not an important military thing i think the most important thing is it keeps them awake at night which I'm not sure, not sure whether you want to keep Germans awake at night. Um, I, well, you're the one who lived in Germany. Did you keep Germans awake? <laughs> yes. <laughs> we're, yeah, we'll glide over that. Right. Now, it, from that, it's obvious you can't allow anyone to do that. So they developed scouts. We'd call them now fighters, but scouts were the, and they were designed to shoot down the, the recce and observation aircraft. Um, but, uh, and, uh, both sides now had to 
develop scouts and then try and shoot down the enemy scouts and then shoot down the artillery observation and so it's a sort of the reason they fought each other was to get at the real target which is the artillery observation and, and photographic uh, wrecking machine now it's a bit of an arms race isn't it you've mentioned before you did a a great example of a um a roller coaster where you know the the party in the ascendancy technologically uh, had a massive advantage, and both sides are, are, are rapidly trying to overcome some technical problems, aren't they? And and the Germans have a good start with the Fokker E3 monoplane. Oh, now, the what's yes, indeed, and and this is this is a simple monoplane. Its real advantage is a forward firing machine gun, and two young pilots. They're, they're great men, really. Lieutenant uh, Max Immelman and Oswald Bulker. So how did it fire forward, Pete? It, how did it... Oh, through an interrupter gear. Sorry, of course. Yeah, it, it fired through the propeller with an interrupter gear, which stopped it firing when the propeller was in the way. <laughs> Otherwise, it could be a disappointment to... <laughs> well, to them, anyway. Uh, so they... they, they uh, Immelman and Bulker used this, and that what they used to do is dive down from out of the glare of the sun or out of clouds. Uh, so they, they were looking to surprise, open fire from close range, looking for an easy kill with a minimum of risk to themselves. And uh, their victories began to mount. And the trouble is, what were the British flying? Well, you, what you were in as Archibald James, they were in the BE-2C. Whoa, those were the days for dramatic and wonderful aircraft names, not like Hawker, Hurricane or Spitfire. Fuh. B-E-2-C. What a name to conjure with. It sets the blood surging. Anyway, this is left Lieutenant. He's changed sides. (laughs) (laughs) Lieutenant Cecil Lewis, 9 Squadron. The B-E-2-C was totally unsuited to the job, of course. It had the observer in front and the pilot behind, whereas with any sense it should have been the pilot in front and the observer behind. But but it wasn't. So the observer sat in a cockpit with four straps very close each side of him, wires to brace him in well, and in front none, 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 none behind, and a little seat he could just get in. And really he could do nothing at all except keep a lookout. So there you are, you've got your Lewis gun in that front cockpit where the corporal was sat. But all round you are sticky things and wires. These, are these terms too technical for you, Gary? No, Sorry. I understood sticky things. Sticky things and wires? Yeah. <laughs> well, if you shoot through them as the idiot corporal, you're in trouble. <laughs> the Presumably there was a blind spot as well, because if you've got the, the pilot behind you, you can't go 360 degrees. It's, it's, there's blind uh, Yeah, there's blind spots all the way. It's terrible. However, they'd order them in thousands. Now, you're a contract person. Why do people order in thousands? Why does it take a long time to change an order? In fact, you've just ordered a washing machine and encountered a little bit of this, haven't you? <laughs> well, there's an economy of scale, so that's the first thing. But also, it's it's the scope. What did they want it for? It was an incredibly stable observation platform. So <laughs> that's what they wanted, and they hadn't thought far enough ahead uh, to think about, you know, the uh, agile fuckers that they would... Uh, uh, struggle to survive, frankly. Well, why would they think about it? I mean, there were no scouts, if you see what I mean, when when they started. And, 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 so, that before the the Allies can get on with preparing for the Somme offensive of July 1916, they have to deal with the Fokker scourge. Um, 
Uh, and while they're dealing with it, they've still got to carry on providing the services that the army requires. Uh, now, the Battle of the Somme is, is the first really big test for the theories of aerial warfare that are being formulated, if you like, by Brigadier General Hugh Trenchard, who had taken uh, command of the RFC on the Western Front in August 1915. We've come across him before. In yeah, he was Peter's a colonel, wasn't he, in 1914? That's it. And he, he'd, he'd, uh, he'd, he'd established a, a close working relationship when he was in command of First Wing with Haig, who was First Army, especially during Nerve Chapelle. They were They're good both... chums. They were good friends, yeah. And they were both less than fluent verbally, although in both cases that can be over-exaggerated. Uh, they're good on paper, and they're both absolutely committed to victory and very willing to sacrifice lives if they considered it necessary for the greater good of the country. Um, he was a brash and booming man, a, uh, a loud mouth in some ways, intolerant of failure, but he had a sort of panache. I can't really describe it, Gary, but you're going to read a quote, and you'll see he gets away with statements that if it was anybody else, he'd be hated by everybody forever. Anyway, this is Brigadier General Hugh Trenchard, and it is probably the funniest quote I've ever heard anybody say. I'm not asking you to do anything I wouldn't do myself. Just because I'm condemned to ride about in a big Rolls Royce and sit out the fighting in a chair, you mustn't think I don't understand. It's just a wonderful, wonderful quote. He had developed a relentless offensive, air, very offensive, if you're in it, uh, aerial strategy. It, it, he developed it in, co in conjunction with the French, but basically you had scout patrols pushing deep behind the German lines, beating back the German uh, aircraft and keeping them as far as possible from the frontline areas. You accept with equanimity the, the, an occasional German aircraft breaking through. You can't stop them. Um, but you, you basically keep flying over the, the German lines. Uh, you ignore the Fokker scourge. His only compromise was that they flew in formation, seeking security in numbers. Um, but underpinning everything, Gary, is the ruthless concept that losses have to be accepted to get the gains, to get the results required. Uh, because the lives of the men on the ground depend in far greater numbers depend on the lives of the, uh, the, the, the pilots being willing to sacrifice their lives. So this is a this is a, a terrible business. Now, the gamble works and and flying in formation sort of covers the cracks until a new generation of British aircraft arrive. And we'll, we'll put pictures of these up. The FE2B, the DH2. Lord, those names, Gary, those, those don't they just trip off the tongue? They spoil it with the next one. The Newport Scout. And the sop with one and a half strutter. <laughs> and together, these aircraft enable the RFC to get, get to get complete control of the skies above the Somme battlefields. And when is it? Just in time. A bit like your ordering procedure when you were ordering things for TFL or indeed your washing machine. Just in time. And then you order the wrong one. <laughs> you have to speak to Janet about that. So what were the FE-2Bs, Gary? I'll let you tell the, the, the assembled masses. Well, again, they're two-seaters, but uh, they're pusher aircraft. That means that the engine's behind the pilot. Uh, they had a multi-purpose role, uh, carrying out offensive patrols, reconnaissance flights, and once again, bombing missions. They were quite sturdy, not particularly fast. Now, I think of them as you. They're chunky, they're quite big. And uh, difficult tough. to shoot down. 
and difficult to shoot down in flames. <laughs> I'm, all, I'm all too easy to shoot down in flames. And the other thing is they developed a unique method of defending themselves, which I think uh, also would suit your character. They flew round and round in circles, protecting each other's tail. And if they were trying to escape home, they'd sort of circle round, round and round, just edging back towards home. Uh, and uh, uh, I can't... We'll put a picture of it. They, they, they had uh, two Lewis guns. One fired forward. Like the, the pilot was behind the observer in the front cockpit, a, two, a two-seater front cockpit. And the second Lewis gun was on a telescopic mounting between the two cockpits. And to fire it, the bloke had to stand, <laughs> leaning backwards over nothing, and shoot back over the, the, the wing. And uh, they actually stood on the struts, not on the floor of the cockpit. They stood on the struts. And I've got a picture of that I'm going to put up with. Now, it had been fine because, you know, they've got parachutes. No, they haven't. And you well know they haven't. <laughs> the other thing, I've often looked at this. I look at this picture and it, the man's demonstrating it on the ground. I wouldn't do that on the ground. Never mind at 5,000 feet. It's just awful. Uh, oh. The other key aircraft is another pusher, the DH-2, de Havilland 2. Oh, it trips DH-2. It, now, that's a single-seater pusher. It's slightly amusing looking to the modern eye. But it, more than anything else, it probably wins the day for the Royal Flying Corps. And, and here's left Lieutenant Max Immerman, Flying Section 62, German Air Force. And he, he gives us the, the picture of what happens. I'm going to read this. Um, he was German. Oh God! How does German? Give me a How do Germans speak? I had a nasty fight in the air today. I took off at about eleven a.m. and met two English biplanes south of Popom. I was about seven hundred meters higher and therefore came up with them very quickly and attacked one. He seemed to heal over after a few shots, but unfortunately I was mistaken. The two worked splendidly together in the course of the fight and put eleven shots into my machine. The petrol tank, the struts on the fuselage, the undercarriage and the propeller were all were hit. I could only save myself by a nosedive of a thousand meters. Then at last the two of them left me alone. It was not a nice business. He was from Cornwall, was he? Yeah, he'd, 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 he'd emigrated when he was young. Now... Uh, we had a, a chap called Major Lano Hawker, VC. He'd won a, a VC uh, over Ypres in 1915. He commanded the first squadron of DH-2s to develop his uh, tactical thinking, uh, which he, he developed it to a peak of sophistication. And uh, it, it, it summed up both his own personality and, Gary, the ethos of the Royal Flying Corps. Now, the, his, his orders for this are important, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the whole thing. Uh, now, I... Tactical orders by Officer Commanding Number 24 Squadron, Royal Flying Corps. Now, this is it in its entirety, Gary. Attack everything! Lano Hawker. That <laughs> <laughs> wasn't too bad, was it? Sorry about no, that. I, I, I don't understand it, that one. <laughs> it, uh, now, uh, the RFC had concentrated some 185 aircraft over the Somme. And they had other aircraft flying in for bombing missions and things. Uh, and of these 185, 76 were the scouts. Now, we're ignoring this, but the French also had a considerable amount of aircraft in the area. But in that British way that makes us so loved, so respected across the globe, they can bugger off. We're not covering them. Um, the British concentrated their resources. Uh, and the Germans, they're also fighting the French over the Verdun. So their air forces are split. 
Um, and the Allies got a significant aerial superiority over the Somme as the Fokker menace sort of splutters out. Now, this is symbolised for me by the death of uh, Max Immelman. He's shot down by a, an FE-2B. Uh, and uh, they sent Bolker, Oswald Bolker, off to the Eastern Front to basically get him out of the way during this period of exceptional danger. Uh, he does a tour looking for new pilots reporting on the aviation situation on the Eastern Front. And this can be seen as a, a turning point. Now, you're going to be Second Lieutenant Gwilym Lewis of 32 Squadron, RFC, and he sums up what's happened. If a Hun sees a DH-2, he runs for his life. They won't come near them. It was only yesterday that one of the fellows came across a fucker. The fucker dived followed by the DH-2, but the wretched fucker dived so hard that when he tried to pull his machine out, his elevator broke and he dived into our lines. Not a shot was fired. Gary, I would say that we're not the only people who find the word fucker amusing. What do you think about the relentless use of that word in that? Uh... Yes, I think he's <laughs> deliberately chosen that word a number of times. And they probably had a good laugh about it. So, before the opening of the offensive, the... The, the Royal Flying Corps had done all its tasks of photographic observation and artillery observation, concentrating the guns onto the targets and, and done everything the army wanted. On the 1st of July, we ca- let's turn briefly to the contact patrols. Um, they're trying to, they're going to say exactly how far the troops had got uh, because, as we've talked about, say, at Neuve-Chapelle, communications often break down. Uh, runners get killed, uh, telephones get uh, lines get broken. Now, this is uh, Lieutenant, Lieutenant Cecil Lewis. Now, he's up in a moraine parasol. That's quite similar to a Fokker, actually. Uh, and he's above La Boiselle, uh, and his eyes are glued to the ground. He says this. We went right down to 3,000 feet to, to see what was happening. We had a klaxon hall on the undercarriage of the moraine, a great big 12-volt klaxon. And I had a button which I used to press out a letter to tell the infantry that we wanted to know where they were. And when they heard us hawking at them from above, they had little red Bengal flares. They carried them in their pocketsies. He says pockets, but I like to say pocketsies. They would put a match to their flares. All along the line, wherever there was a chap, there would be a flare. And we would note these flares down on the map. And Bob's your uncle, Gary. He didn't say Gary. <laughs> he did say Bob's your uncle. <laughs> and his name's Derek. Your uncle is Uncle Derek. Hello, Uncle Derek. Um, it was one thing to practice this, but quite another thing for them to really do it when they were under fire. And particularly when things began to get a bit badly. Things began to go a bit badly, Gary, didn't they? <laughs> they were, then they jolly well wouldn't light anything and small blame to them because they drew the fire of the enemy onto them at once. So we went down looking for flares and we only got about two flares on the whole front. We were bitterly disappointed. Now, can you imagine you, Gary? You're a soldier. You managed to get into the German front line. You're quite on your own. And somebody goes, meh, meh. Are you going to light a Bengal flare? No, but I did put a match to my flares at the end of the 70s. <laughs> That's terrible. I waited the whole quote to say that, Pete. Yeah, well, it was worth the wait, Gary. Thanks. 
Now, the the, effect, the 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 first of July is a disaster. One reason being that although we'd identified a lot of battery positions, we hadn't put enough artillery onto them. The that the seriousness of counter battery fire was not yet properly understood. There was all these things went wrong that we hadn't understood the the amount of fire that was needed to destroy dugouts, barbed wire, the rest of it. It was a failure. But the offensive carries on. Why do you think the offensive carries on, Gary? Well, what's the choice? Uh, <laughs> you, you've got to. The Germans are ensconced. You've got to support the French. What choice do you have? And it, it's it's part of a series of battles. I mean, the Russians, the Italians, everybody's fighting. You've got to keep going. It's a key component in the grand grand uh, strategy. Now, the pattern of fighting, uh, it's been established in mid-July and it continues right through August. It's just desperate attacks by a few British battalions, uncoordinated, trying to get some tactically significant fear feature. Uh, they're trying to consolidate their gains. And, and, and what do the Germans do? Uh, well, what the do the Germans, Germans always do? The Ger- well, the Germans uh, are planning their own uh, counterattacks. Yeah. yeah. Uh, now, um, in, throughout this, the Royal Flying Corps plays its part. It, it's central by this time to planning for the, for, for further attacks. So uh, the, 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 the the contact patrols still needed. The aerial photography still needed. All the all the things still needed. The observation. It's it, it, this allows the Royal Artillery to slowly get a bit more of a grip on the battlefield as, as the months go on. And the German High Command is well aware of this. And this is General Fritz von Bülow, Headquarters, German Fast Army. The beginning and the first weeks of the Somme battle were marked by a complete inferiority of our own air forces. The enemy's airplanes enjoyed complete freedom in carrying out distance reconnaissances. With the aid of airplane observation, the hostile artillery neutralized our guns and was able to range with the most extreme accuracy on the trenches occupied by our infantry. The required data for this was provided by undisturbed trench reconnaissance and photography. By means of bombing and machine gun attacks from a low height against infantry, battery positions and marching columns, the enemy's aircraft inspired our troops with a feeling of defencelessness against the enemy's mastery of the air. On the other hand, our own aeroplanes only succeeded in quite exceptional cases in breaking through the hostile patrol barrage and carrying out distant reconnaissances. Our artillery machines were driven off whenever they attempted to carry out registration for their own batteries. Photographic reconnaissance could not fulfil the demands made upon it, Thus, at decisive moments, the infantry frequently lacked the support of the German artillery either in counter-battery work or in barrage on the enemy's infantry massing for attack. And that's, I mean, I've always, one of the principles of my life is uh, the, pra- the, the praise of your enemies is the, the thing to be most appreciated. When your friends say something's good, well, who cares? Uh, you never do, by the way, before you start. But, oh, you're, uh, you're quite good, Pete. Thank you. That was, wasn't that one of our best reviews? Somebody said we were quite good. More than we deserve, though. So uh, we'll carry on. Um, now, it's not only the Germans who are having trouble, because the pilots and observers of the Royal Flying Corps are coming to the end of their tether. And this is 2nd Lieutenant Harold Balfour, 60 Squadron, RFC. 
This is quite a sad quote, so I'm going to read it straight. Uh, I find this quite, quite uh, touching. The heat of the long summer days was terrific, and our flying hours were many. All these facts assisted to play upon the temperaments of those who were flying in France for the first time and had not got confidence either in their ability or in their aeroplanes. I can remember my bedroom companion in the farmhouse in which we were billeted. He felt as I did, and how each of us lay awake in the darkness, not telling the other that sleep would not come listening to the incessant roar of the guns and thinking of the dawn patrol next morning. At last we could bear it no longer and calling out to each other admitted a mutual feeling of terror and foreboding. We lit the candles to hide the dark and after that felt a little bit better and somehow got through that night as we had to get through the next day. And people have started to crack up. Uh, he, he did have to go home. Uh, I want to make clear, Harold Balfour comes out two more times as well. He, I mean, he just has... His nerve just goes for a short period. He's very young as well. These guys are 18, 19. Um, there's one pilot, though, who stands out, although he too has trouble with uh, with his nerves, and that's second lieutenant Albert Ball. And he was flying the French single-seater Newport uh, 16 Scout. Uh, and it's a streamlined tractor bi- biplane. Now, the British couldn't fire through the propellers. We've talked about the pushers, that, that the reason they can fire straight ahead is because the gun's in front of the, uh, it's in front of the uh, propeller. Um, uh, but the, the, we had no, Im- we have no interrupter gear. So the only firepower was a fixed forward firing machine gun, which is on the top wing. We'll do anything to avoid addressing the real problem. So it's on the top wing, just perched up there, and it fires over the uh, propeller straight ahead. Um, now, Ball took to firing loads of pa- f- uh, flying loads of patrols across the German lines. He, he looked for trouble wherever. Although he had trouble with his nerves, it wasn't the sort that stopped him from diving into action. He wasn't scared. He just got a bit nervy at times. Um, um, but but I, I want to make it clear, compared to the infantry, they're not suffering great casualties. Uh, but... If you're in a small unit of, say, 16 people and you have a casualty a day, how long is it before everybody's dead? And also, it's very noticeable. Of One person is. is very noticeable. Out of 16 or, or less, 12 even. Uh, so uh, you get replacements that are coming in, but y- y- your odds of surviving are low uh, in a whole three-month or more tour of action. And you're going to be Albert, Second Lieutenant Albert Ball, 11th Squadron, RFC. Posh Nottingham, please. Really? One has only just time to button up one's tunic. I'm having a poo-poo time. But most interesting. On the 6th, three topping chaps went off and never returned. Yesterday, four of my best pals went off and today one of our new chaps has just gone over. So you can guess we're always having to get used to new faces. Yesterday, I was up at 5am and during the day had 12 flights, but at last nature is asking to have its own way. However, I am not done yet. I shall get at them again soon. He bloody meant it too. He's suffering from the strain. Um, and uh, he'd had something, but he put in a... Di- I love this. He put in a direct request to his squadron leader for more rest. And that... That wasn't done. It really wasn't. And he ends up with Brigadier General uh, Higgins, who commanded 3rd Brigade, Rolf Lyko. He not only refuses to accept the request, but he sends it back to fly B-2Cs as a punishment. <laughs> I love the idea. Your best scout pilot. No, you're not having any rest. 
bugger off and back to the B2Cs. That'll keep you quiet. He carried on regardless and eventually got back onto his Newport. Uh, 22nd of August, there's an amazing story that he tells, which, which gives you the idea, doesn't it, Gary, of what it was like. Uh, I've, I find this quite, quite just inspirational, and so did other people. Yeah, this is 2nd Lieutenant Albert Ball, 11th Squadron, IFC. Met 12 Huns. Number one fight. I attacked and fired two drums, bringing the machine down just outside a village. All crashed up. Number two fight. I attacked and got under machine, putting in two drums. Hun went down in flames. Number three fight. I attacked and put in one drum. Machine went down and crashed onto a housetop. All these fights were seen and reported by other machines that saw them go down. I only got hit 11 times in the planes, so I returned and got more ammunition. That's his wingy things, isn't it? Yeah. This time, luck was not all on the spot. I was met by about 14 Huns, about 15 miles over their side. My windscreen was hit in four places, mirror broken, the spar of the left plane broken, also, engine ran out of petrol, but I had a good sport and good luck, but only just, for I was brought down about one mile over our side. Now, where, where do you think the mirror and the windscreen is in relation to his head? Probably right in front of it. He's, he just seems to be able to, at this stage in his life, fly into bullets time and time again and manage to come out unscathed. Uh, his method was, was, was called the balls up. Can you imagine why it's called the balls up, uh? Uh, well, it's a pun on his name, obviously, Peter. What he used to do was he used to fly along, he'd charge straight for, well, 14 in this case, and when they broke up, he'd find the doziest-looking one, hello, Gary, and then he'd fly along, and he'd dart underneath it, pull his Lewis gun down on the top wing, and fire straight upwards, and what would he hit in the German pilot? The nether regions. His balls, Gary, his balls. Hence, balls up. This is unrepeatable. No one else could do that. Anyway, it was just a matter of time before he's killed. But he, this time, he, he, he isn't. You can't train people to do that. I just want to labour this point a minute. You know, he could do it, but you couldn't pass that on to others. And I think you've described it previously as, as being a berserker approach. Yeah, um, and... and and a technique that other people tried to follow, they going under the, couldn't do. Now, uh, but by this time, the British on the ground are trying to get ready for the Battle of Flares Courcelette on the 15th of September. And again, it's all wreck it, all artillery observation. Just because we're missing out talking about this a lot, I want you to imagine it as a, a huge wall. Uh, and it, it does. They, they launch it 15th September and, uh, and, and they unveil the tanky thing. That, that, uh, which has some impact, uh, but they're slow, prone to breakdown. It doesn't cause the breakthrough. Any, well, there's no hope by this time, really. Uh, but the German artillery fire still crashes out. They still still haven't really got enough counter-battery fire to, to suppress it. They're, this is something that they're learning. Uh, and uh, but, but the Royal Flying Corps is still doing everything. On the ground, we bash the German line. We bent it, we biffed it, we bite into it. Good Lord, we do everything. But we don't break through. Uh, the morale of the defending G Germans is, is, is badly dented, but it endures. Their manpower reserves are stretched, but they just about hold. Um, the RFC, what, what do you think? So what's their role? What are they doing? 
Well, they're breaking all records at, at that time for the amount of hours they're flying and the intensity of the aerial fighting, the contact patrols, artillery observation work, deep search and reconnaissance patrols, bombing raids, and it's all covered by the aggressive posture of the scouts seeking out their prey. And let's not forget, they are there to save the lives of the men on the ground in their thousands. And what they're doing is they're pushing over the German lines uh, because it's like in a rugby game. If you play the game or a football match, if you play the game in the other person's penalty area you, uh, or, or, or in, uh, under the post, you're going to win. Uh, you might be an occasional breakaway try or goal. Uh, and with Arsenal and Liverpool, there's certainly bound to be a couple of goals uh, at the other end. But in the end, you'll win, hopefully. Uh, now... Um, but however, things start to swing back. You you mentioned earlier technological change. What's the big technological change? Two things happen. One, Oswald Bulker comes back with a new scout squadron of specially selected pilots, JASTA two. But what's the new thing, Gary? What 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 have they got that makes all the difference? Well, they've got the new Albatross D one scout, and it's uh, it's the first scout to be armed with twin Spandau machine guns which fire through the propeller without uh, a corresponding loss in performance. Now that's interesting because we've only got the SOP with one and a half Sutter which is a two-seater. That's the only British plane firing through the propeller that has got an interrupter gear. But this has got two, you said, twin Spandau machine guns. Uh, what else is good about the, the Albatross? Because that's not the only good thing, no, is it? No, it's, it's powered by a Mercedes engine, which took it up to speeds of nearly 110 mile per hour. Watch my lips, Pete. 110 miles and per that, hour. That's 10, 15 miles faster, 20 miles faster now. What else is special about it? There's just one more. It's, it's quite important. Well, it's the pilots themselves, isn't there? It's not just Bulker. Um, here's a name of one of the uh, the pilots that uh, was flying with him. Right, Lloyd the chances Lentz. the chances of me having heard of this person are remote. This is true. It, he's 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 not known very far outside of Germany. Lieutenant Manfred von Richthofen. I have heard of him. Wasn't a he red evil? Baron. He was yeah, evil. Yeah, he was terribly evil. He was born in 1882 of an aristocratic family. Uh, he had a keen interest in hunting, uh, which uh, he's going to take that to new heights, Pete. And uh, early in the war, he served as a cavalryman before a desire for excitement caused him to gravitate into the German air service because cavalry wasn't exciting enough for him. Now, his first victory occurs on the 17th of September when he shoots down an FE-2B crewed by a couple of veterans, uh, Lieutenant Lionel Morris and Lieutenant Tom Reese. Now, they've got simply no chance. Now, I want to make it clear there's been a book come out about these, which sadly I haven't, I've, I've got to review it. Um, uh, but I believe it's very good. Just about these, it's about Lionel Morris in particular. I want to make it clear these guys had killed... They're not innocents. They are they, 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 they are people who've shot down other planes. They are experienced veterans. They are not helpless. However, the FE-2B, the two-seater FE-2B, is so inferior to the Albatross that it, it, it compensates for any lack of experience or combat skills that Richthofen's got. And you're going to tell a story, and it is evident that he makes mistakes in this combat, but there's so much margin for error that he still kills them. So, well, rather ruin the ending, but... Lieutenant Manfred von Richthofen, just a two German air service. What accent are you selecting? Um, mine. The Englishman nearest to me was travelling in a large machine painted in dark colours. 
I did not reflect very long, but took my aim and shot. He also fired, and so did I, and both of us missed our aim. A struggle began, and the great point for me was to get to the rear of the fellow. Apparently, he was no beginner, for he knew exactly that his last hour had arrived at that moment, and I got at the back of him. At that time, I had not yet the conviction, he must fall, which I had now on such occasions. But on the contrary, I was curious to see whether he would fall. My Englishman twisted and turned, flying in zigzags. At last, a favourable moment arrived. My opponent, my opponent had apparently lost sight of me. Instead of twisting and turning, he flew straight along. In a fraction of a second, I was at his back with my excellent machine. I gave a short burst of shots with my machine gun. I'd gone so close that I was afraid I might dash into the Englishman. Suddenly, I nearly yelled with joy, for the propeller of the enemy machine had stopped turning. Hurrah! I had shot his engine to pieces. The enemy was compelled to land, for it was impossible for him to reach his own lines. The English machine was swinging curiously to and fro, Probably something had happened to the pilot. The observer was no longer visible. I think that's a bit chilling because what had happened was he'd riddled them with bullets. They were both killed. I'm glad you didn't use the accent you did when we, we chat, discussed this because you were going to do Aid Edmondson's version of Rick Duff in, uh, in, in Blackadder, weren't you? And that would have been inappropriate, Gary. It would have been. Now, Rick Duffin's on his way to becoming the greatest scourge of the RFC and Lieutenants Morris and Reese were just the first victims of his illustrious career his aircraft's clearly better than anything the british have got and just to rub it in but the germans swines the albatross d2s start to arrive at the front in fact the d3s arrived before before we really are able to respond now you were in charge of contracts you've discussed this economies of scale it takes time you can't just say oh i'll have a new scout please it takes months if not years um now Treadshard, what, how does he respond? Well, he responds as you'd expect. The RFC will continue to do its duty to the men on the ground because thousands of lives are at stake on the ground and just dozens in the air. I, I'm sorry, but it's cruel and it's harsh. He's not the sort of men to bend, is he, Treadshard? No, and let's not forget the RFC still had a considerable numerical superiority. So you just had to hope you didn't meet the, the Germans when they're better scouts. You just, mostly you wouldn't. But then when you did, you were in trouble. Um, in October, the weather gets worse. And what's the problem for aircraft in bad weather? They have trouble flying. It really hamstrings them. And they were being harried by these bloody albatross. I preferred it when they were Fockers. But never mind. These bloody albatross with the Fockers inside them. Um, and uh, the only silver lining. What's the only silver lining for uh, for the Royal Flying Corps? Well, it's the, uh, it's the death of Oswald Bulker. Uh, someone, he, uh, I, someone we both admire enormously, I think. Yeah, he dies in an accident, actually. It's a mid-air collision on the 28th of October, 1916. He was a, a, proven himself to be a, a fantastic mentor to the young pilots. Uh, always leading he led, from the, led from the front, didn't he? Yeah, That's always it. leading from the front. He achieved uh, some 40 victories uh, on his own account. And... and uh... He was like like a father figure in some ways to yeah. I mean, Rick, Rick was definitely inspired by him. So, uh, uh, so the, the Bulker was gone, but do you know his work was done? His dicta, as they called it, uh, his his rules of air fighting: dive from behind, uh, out of, uh, from from the sun or the cloud, uh, 
All this stuff we talked about earlier, he'd already done it, and it was Richtofen had taken it on board. Albert Ball's methods, they're not transferable. He's beginning, he's ploughing a lonely furrow, furrow and he begins, he, he, the stress is getting to him. And, and in this quote, next quote, I want you to look at two things. One, he's fixating on things, and particularly he's fixating on his score and, 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 and the, de- the death of people. Um, so tell me this quote. Is that, Captain Albert Ball, 60 Squadron. She was a two-seater, and I fired five rounds into her. She burst into flames and fell upside down. Although she dropped like a stone, I saw her observer climb out of his seat and jump clear of the flames. He must have preferred that kind of death to the chance of being roasted. I feel so sorry for the chaps I've killed. Just imagine what their poor people must feel like. However, it must be done, or they would kill me. His nerves are getting tighter and tighter, and he asks to go home again. And this time, uh, he he's doing very, very well. He's shot down, I can't remember, about 40 people by this time, or claimed to have shot down. There is a difference. Uh, and uh, his, his, he was allowed to go home. He'd got 31 victories by then. Sorry, um, uh, I think I said 40, didn't I? Um, he was a real thing, wasn't he, Gary? Uh, we, we admire him, don't we? He was a strange young man, but... Yeah, I don't, he, he's he's probably the first high-scoring British ace and, uh, you know, at, at that stage of the world, the RFC didn't accept the classification of ace for pilots uh, who'd scored more than five victories, which was what they did earlier in the war. He's not really the future, though, is he, for the RFC? Because he's, you mentioned his, his un- unrepeatable methods. Yeah, he's a lone wolf and that can't be the future. You have got to be able to bring new pilots along. So, in in a sense, the German method, Bolker and Richthofen, was the, the 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 tactics, the sensible approach to yeah. It's the, about managing the risks, isn't it? They they're coming out of the sun and and reducing the risks to themselves. It's they want to kill without endangering themselves. Do not follow down a stricken plane, for example. All these sorts of tenets uh, were designed to 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 um, minimise the risk to the, to themselves. Now Albert Ball did exactly the opposite. He maximised the risk and to you himself. Ju- you just mentioned one of Manick's principles. Manick, of course, wasn't there. He didn't come out till 17. Uh, McCudden was, was still flat. Edward. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, McCudden was still flying uh, uh, a DH2, and they, they hadn't yet become influential. So the Germans, in a way, have a better but a better start to tactically in the air. But Ball is an inspiration, though, isn't he? He's a, like a benchmark of courage, if you like. Uh, I, I am. Now, um, so... In the air, the, the Germans are doing better. They've got new aircraft. They, they've got even they've got a Halberstadt D two, the Roland D two, the Faltz D two. They're all coming onto stream, but the Albatross is the biggest scourge. But the Royal Flying Corps continues to carry out everything Haig and the, the other generals want, right to the bitter end. Uh, up they went. Whenever the weather was clear, they'd go up, and it's one of the great lessons of aerial warfare. Uh, supremacy in the air doesn't mean shooting people down. It means the ability to keep doing the, what you want, the Army photographic reconnaissance and the artillery observation. 13th November, Battle of Ankh, the last gasp of the Somme. Uh, it, all, it goes quite well. And af- But after that, 18th November, Haig suspends the attacks. But there's one more fight. On the thir- at 1 o'clock, 1300, on 23rd November, Major Lano Hawker, he, he, t- he leads his squadron over the front. Now you weren't meant to go over the front, but he did. He used to, as as the um, as a as a major in charge of a squadron, he wasn't meant to go over the front, but he used to stand in for people on leave or sweating, as they called it, on leave. 
He was a, a brave man. Uh, in, the, in, the, in that day, he was separated from the rest and he encounters, oh God, Lieutenant Richtofen in his albatross. Now, it's a duel to the death. Uh, the DH2, the old scourge of the battlefield versus a new scourge of the battlefield. What's going to happen? Well, sadly, you're going to be Lieutenant Manfred von Richtofen, Jaster 2, and it's you that tells the story. Lieutenant Manfred von Richtofen. So we circled round and round like madmen after one another at an altitude of about 10,000 feet. Each tried to get behind and above the other. Soon I discovered that I was not meeting a beginner. He had not the slightest intention to break off the fight. He was travelling in a box which turned beautifully. That was actually the major advantage. Uh, uh, it was a defensive advantage. However, my packing case was better at climbing than his. But I succeeded at last in getting above and beyond my English waltzing partner. When we had got down to about 6,000 feet without having achieved anything in particular, my opponent ought to have discovered that it was time for him to take his leave. The wind was favourable to me, for it drove us more and more towards the German position. Now, can I just intercede that this is, he's in some sense, he's talking, it's not just that... Uh, his aircraft climbed better. It was faster. And that meant he couldn't escape. He couldn't get away because if he turned, Richtoff would get him. So in some senses, he's talking nonsense. But, and uh, also, but, the DH2's still only got the single Lewis gun, hasn't it? That's it. And he's got twin Spandaus. So it, it, it yeah. Anyway, carry on, Richtofen. The gallant fellow was full of pluck. And when we had got down to about 3,000 feet, he merrily waved to me, as if he would say, well, how do you do? The circles which we made round one another were so narrow that their diameter was probably no more than 250 or 300 feet. I had time to take a good look at my opponent. If he had not had his cap on, I would have noticed what kind of a face he was making. I can imagine. <laughs> and gestures, Gary. Yeah. My Englishman was a good sportsman. But by and by, the thing became a little too hot for him. He had to decide whether he would land on German ground or whether he would fly back to the English lines. Of course, he tried the latter after having endeavoured in vain to escape me by loopings and such tricks. I don't believe that loopings. He'd just shot him down if he tried to loop. When he had come down to about 300 feet, he tried to escape by flying in a zigzag course, which makes it difficult for an observer on the ground to shoot. That was my most favourable moment. I followed him at an altitude of from 250 to 150 feet, firing all the time. The Englishman could not help falling. But the jamming of my gun nearly robbed me of my success. My opponent fell, shot through the head, 150 feet behind our line. Now, that's interesting, because that has some similarities to how Richtof and himself would be killed two years later. Uh, and I like to think it was someone on the ground who actually shot Hawker. Just, just if you know the story of Rick Duffin, you'll uh, you'll know. Now, uh, this it's a sort of symbol, isn't it, of the technological pendulum? It swung the Germans' way, big style, uh, and it leaves the RFC. They're in a markedly inferior position, isn't it? The FE2Bs, the DH2s, the BE2Cs, they've all had their day. The, the use of pusher aircraft to overcome the lack of proper machine gun synchronization it 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 was temporarily successful but in the end you had to have proper uh, interrupter gear you needed faster 
better aircraft like the the tractor aircraft like the albatross but overall let's say the the, the battle of the Somme, it, it, it it's come of age hasn't it gary that's what we think yeah it's almost entirely fought over and behind the german lines isn't it and uh, the rfc successfully carried out its role whatever you you may think in the face of a, a skillful well-equipped opponent I think it's amazing. And the Aces may get the glory. We may talk more about Hawker and, and Ball, but actually uh, the Army Cooperation Pilots and the Observers in their BTCs, that totally obsolescent, they're the real heroes whose lives save the lives, in my opinion, of thousands of British soldiers. And, and also they, of course, killed countless Germans by, by their control of the artillery. Now, how many casualties were there, Gary? 545 raw flying court casualties, of which 233 were fatal. Now, that's that's not many more than a, a, a battalion would suffer, that was, or a brigade would suffer in a bad smash-up, isn't it? It's not that many in the scheme of things. No, but it's but as you, it's all relevant, isn't it? it? They're all noticeable in the squadrons, the new faces that were mentioned earlier. And just bear in mind, that's between... The start of June and the end of November 1916. So it's only one short period. Now, uh, so overall, it's painful, but it's worth it. Uh, and, and that's why I call it some success. Uh, but what's looming from? What's coming up next? What, 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 what was my next book going to be called, Gary? What was it going to be called? It was Up the Arras. Well, that's what lies in front of them, the Battle of Arras, 1917, when Rick Doffin and a whole new generation of aces take their toll. What a story that's going to be, and we hope to tell that to you in a future podcast. Well, thanks a lot for, for joining us on this. If you want to read more, my book, Some Success, is available on uh, Pen and Sword, um, and I've got lots of books about various things. Uh, and thank you, Gary. You were particularly wonderful today, I thought. Thanks, Pete. Is your sleeve dry yet? Yeah, just about, just about. I thought you were going to say I was quite good. But... No, you were quite good. <laughs> Cheers, Gary. Cheers, Pete. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?